Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 10 to 15. While you're turning there, I'll just tell you about a little event in my life. Uh, a couple weeks ago, you probably saw a sermon video that rather than me doing it on Sunday, I actually did it on Wednesday. In fact, I might have even said that in that video because two and a half years ago, I said to my dad, uh, you need to sign up for Otter Flight and I will drop what I am doing and I will be your guardian. Now, under normal circumstances, you're given like three or four months. But what we think might have happened is that uh, someone dropped out and with about 10 days to go, they called my dad and then they called me and said, can you make it? Well, I had promised two and a half years ago I would drop whatever I was doing. So uh, I went, I flew out on Friday to Syracuse, New York, and then at about four in the morning we flew out from Syracuse to uh, Reagan Airport in Washington, D.C. with Honor Flight. And there were about uh, 75 uh, vets on the plane. If you can imagine, 25 of them were World War II vets. Uh, 25 were Korean and 25 were Vietnam vets. Uh, my dad was a career military officer for 27 years, and he was a history major, and I was a history major, and we talk a lot of history. We have never talked about his time in Vietnam. He has not wanted to talk about it, but that day, he decided to talk, and I learned a lot of things I didn't know. Uh, one of the things is that my dad served three tours in Vietnam. I had no idea. I was just a little person. I have no recollection of my dad being gone for that many years. But he told me that whenever I saw someone in khakis or dressed whites, I would run up to them thinking it was my dad. And that went on for a few years. I also assumed, because he was a naval officer, that he was always in the ocean, but in fact he was inland on inland bodies of water and in fact was in uh, probably a fair amount of combat. I had known about one of his friends, uh, Lieutenant Commander Carl Peterson. I knew it was a close friend of his. And if you know anything about the Navy, there is one class of naval ships, destroyers, that are named after war heroes. Uh, one of them is the USS Peterson, named after uh, one of my cl father's closest friends. So when we were at the uh, Vietnam War Memorial, uh, I had a picture of that part of the wall with my dad, and that was very moving. And uh, when we got up uh, to Hancock Airport in Syracuse, there were about 500 people there in the morning, very moving. Got to Reagan Airport, another 500. That night, another 500. Then we got back, there were over 1,000. Um, now, my role was to push my dad. He can walk, but I think he wanted to see if I had enough brawn to push him in a wheelchair all day and night. Uh, so I pushed my dad, and I can't tell you how moving it was. Uh, two rear admirals there saluting, uh, two-star general. Uh, you know, soldiers sometimes in a handshake give a coin. My dad got six coins that day. Uh, children giving him 
little uh, cards and thanking him for a service. And every time I would push him, I would say the whole time, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. Uh, it was just so patriotic, so moving, and so honoring. This will make its way back into the message in a few minutes. Uh, let's pray. Father God, as we talk a little bit about the foundation that we build our lives upon, we can see in the text that there's only one firm foundation, one safe foundation, one legitimate foundation, the foundation Jesus Christ. And so, Father, as we look at this text familiar to some and maybe less familiar to others, we pray that we would rightly divide it, that we would see truth in and through it, and not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well, and apply it well. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. For those who sincerely believe in purgatory, chapter 3, verse 15 would be the verse that one would cite. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I'll go ahead and end the suspense. I don't actually believe in purgatory. I don't believe that that is what the text is referring to. But because this is the most cited text on purgatory, I want to take a few moments to give us a history of how we came up with a doctrine that has divided the church. What you may be surprised to know is this. There is no one in the early church that can be cited that believed in purgatory. In fact, the first scholar that may have had inklings towards purgatory is in the 5th century. That would be Augustine. And it's quite debatable whether he was referring to purgatory or not. The word purgatory is a Latin word. It doesn't come into existence until the 12th century, which is seven centuries after Augustine lived. But was he referring to something like that? Most Protestants say no. Most universal church followers say yes. The first unambiguous scholar to teach on what we would call purgatory, not using that name, of course, was Pope Gregory the Great, who died in the beginning of the 7th century. He made this statement, As for certain faults, we must believe that before the final judgment, there is a purifying fire. Yet even with Pope Gregory the Great's support, it will not be until the 13th century that the universal church will embrace purgatory. The earliest mention at any ecumenical council is the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, and it really isn't codified until 1274 at the Council of Lyons, L-Y-O-N-S. That is a very late date for a doctrine to be embraced by the universal church. And yet it is embraced indeed. Now you may say, well, I don't think it's embraced today. Actually, it is. The last ecumenical council, Vatican II from 1962 to 1965, 
had 2,800 bishops, released 16 major documents, and right around page 1,050, they wrote this, and it was for several pages. Purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. This is what purgatory is. For those who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified. Now you may say, well, I thought purgatory was abolished in the Reformation. Not really. What was abolished after the Reformation in the Universal Church's counter-Reformation was the selling of indulgences. Now indulgences are an important sidekick to purgatory because an indulgence is a treasury of merits, the good works by Jesus and the apostles and particularly good people. And those good works are endowed to the reigning pope who can then give them or at one time sell them so that your time in purgatory can be shortened. And in 1567, in response to the Protestant Reformation and Dr. Martin Luther, you were no longer allowed to sell indulgences. Interestingly enough, a few years ago, leading one of the tours I lead in Israel, at the Mount of Beatitudes, we actually saw indulgences sold. That is in violation of the church. You can receive one indulgence per sinner per day for a donation or for a good work, but you can no longer buy them. Now, why would you need these things? Well, because most of us are sinners. In fact, all of us are sinners. Dante, in his Divine Comedy of 1321, tells us that there are nine levels of purgatory, two of which most of us will find ourselves in if it existed, and the other are for the seven deadly sins, pride, envy, wrath, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust. So what exactly is purgatory? Well, the author who wrote the most about it was Thomas Aquinas in his Summa Theologica, I wouldn't recommend it unless you're tired and want to go to bed. But uh, in his Summa Theologica, he tells us, and it's now been codified in the church, that the fires of purgatory are the same fires as hell, except one level higher. So the fires of hell and the fires of purgatory give you an idea of how unpleasant it is to go to this place of purification called purgatory. Now you might ask, how long are you going to be there if indeed this place exists? Well, that depends on your behavior and the era in which you lived. At the end of the dark ages, around a thousand before the word was given, but the concept existed, one scholar told us that on average it was 1,902,200 years. At the end of the Middle Ages, that would be the 1400s, on the Iberian Peninsula in the Spanish-speaking world, we were told on average it's about one to 2,000 years. Uh, a little bit longer for uh, those who are naughty, I'm talking to you, Dan McDonald, and a little bit shorter for those who are better behaved, Sue McDonald. 
Yeah, I know how to handle the situation. Uh, why don't I believe in purgatory? Well, I don't think there's any scripture that would support purgatory. And as we'll see today, the text most side of the 15th verse clearly is not talking about purgatory. The early church did not believe in purgatory. They didn't even have that concept. Again, it's Pope Gregory the Great at the end of the 6th and early 7th century that really came up with the concept. But I think even more telling is the fact that it contradicts the sufficiency of Christ's atonement. Is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ sufficient to pay the penalty of our sin? Jesus himself thought so. In John 19.30, one of the seven last words on the cross, he said to telestai. It's the word that means it is finished. It's a word that comes out of the penal colonies when a woman or man was sentenced to jail and she or he had served their term, the warden would come by and on a piece of parchment would write to telestai and nail it above the cell. And then when the jailer came by, he would see to Telestai paid in full. He would open the door and set the captive free. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He cried out to Telestai paid in full. And he set the captives. That is us who know Christ. He set the captives free. He believed in the sufficiency of his atonement. That he had paid it all. That we don't need to further, after faith in Christ, go to a place of purification. Self-purification at that. The prophet Isaiah, writing 700 years earlier, wrote this in Isaiah 53.5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds you and I are healed. And doesn't Romans 8.1 say, for those who are in Christ Jesus, therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. If Dante is right and the fires of purgatory are the same fires of hell, that would be condemnation, would it not? And yet scripture is clear. For we who are in Christ Jesus, the atonement of Christ is sufficient. He paid it all. He has set the captive free. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we've talked about what verse 15 is not about. Let's pick up and read verses 10 to 15 and find out what they actually are about. According to the grace of God, given to me like a skilled master builder, I lay a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, notice the capitals, 
The day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as one through fire or only as through fire. It doesn't say one. I added that to catch your attention. It doesn't say one. What goes through the fire is not the person. It's what you build upon. Grammatically, that is rather clear in the Greek text. As verse 13 affirms, the text is talking about how each of us build our lives. What we do with what God has afforded to us. It's talking about a day and age when there will be a reckoning. When there will be an accounting not for condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but for additional rewards, for phrases like, well done, good and faithful servant, come and enter my rest, an evaluation of what you and I did with the opportunities for the kingdom that God afforded us. What we did with the time that God entrusted to us and how we utilized it for the kingdom. How we utilized the talents that God gave us and how we utilized them for the kingdom. What we did with the treasures that God gave us on loan and how we utilized them for the kingdom. The text is telling us that a day is coming. That's what the day is. If you're steeped in the Old Testament, you know that it's the day of the Lord. It's the day of evaluation, the day of accounting, the day of reckoning. For the unbeliever, it's the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20. That's where the judge is a lion of Judah, Christ, who will look in the Lamb's book of life, see unbelievers not listed, and they will be condemned. To an eternity separated from God in a literal hell. For the believer, it's the Bema judgment spoken about in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 3, we'll look at today, 2 Corinthians 5. It's not a judgment of condemnation because we have been passed over for condemnation. The blood of Christ has been imputed to us, the righteousness of Christ. It covers us. And so we're not condemned, but we are evaluated. We are accounted how we did with what God has entrusted to us. And if we have done well, unbelievably, undeservedly, by grace, God gives us extra rewards to enjoy for all of eternity. Heaven will be a wonderful place for all who have been covered by the shed blood of Christ through faith in Jesus. But for some, it might even be more wonderful because of how they live their lives and the rewards that God entrusts to them for all of eternity. And so verses 10 and 11 says, choose carefully, work wisely, invest carefully in the foundation that you and I build our lives. And essentially it says there's two foundations there's the kingdom of Jeff and there's the kingdom of Jesus. And it doesn't take much brains to figure out which is the right one. And you can change the kingdom of Jeff to your name 
But the kingdom of Jesus remains and that's the foundation that you and I must build our lives. That's the foundation we want to pass on to our children and our grandchildren. We want them to see us investing in the kingdom of Jesus. And so I've got to step back and I've got to ask myself, am I, are you, are we investing in the kingdom of Jesus? It starts with some of our habits and how we utilize our time. Are we watching and listening to things that advance our understanding of Christ? Or is it just things that will burn up? Are you and I around our innermost circle people who spur us on to take the next step in our relationship with Jesus Christ? To connect, to grow and go in Christ. Are that what, are that the, the focal point of our friends? Are they pushing us to take that next step? I need to ask myself, honestly, is that true or is it not? How am I utilizing what God has entrusted to me? How are you utilizing what God has entrusted to you? We have a phrase in the United States. Uh, it finishes differently, but we, we say things like this. And this is not judgmental. We say things like, I'm a homeschool family or I'm a public school family. Or we're a beach family, or we're a music family, or we're a soccer family. I think that's what my family might say. We're, we're a soccer family, or at this time of year, we are a Yankees family. My wife is a heretic, but the rest of us are Yankee fans. We are a Yankee family. But even while saying that, more than that, we want to be able to say we are Jesus family. We we are a family centered on the kingdom of Jesus. And it is evidenced by how we live. This text is all about how we're building the foundation of our lives. Look at the verses. Verse 10. Let each one take care how he builds. Verse 11. No one can lay a foundation other than Jesus Christ. Verse 12. Now if anyone builds on the foundation. Verse 13. Each one's work, that is what we're building with, is the foundation. And it will become manifest. Verse 14. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives. Verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up. It's all about building. Building. And there's really only two ways to build. The kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of Jeff. Or fill in your name. Now we're given six materials. But they're really divided into two categories. Gold, silver, precious stones. Wood, hay, and stubble. And scripture tells us that they will be tested by fire. What happens to gold, silver, and precious stones when it's tested by fire? The impurities are smelted off. The, the dross is burned off. The impurities are gone and what is pure remains. What happens with wood, hay, and straw or stubble when it faces a fire? It's consumed. It's gone. It's lost. And what the text is telling us, everything we do in our life is in one of two categories. It's in a category in which it will not burn up. There's, there might be some impurities that be smelted off, but there's kingdom value. Or there's a category in which there's no kingdom value whatsoever. And when it is tested by fire, it will be burned up. It will be consumed. And I've got to ask myself, 
Am I building more with materials that will last when tested with fire? Or am I building more with materials that will be consumed when tested by fire? So let's consider some gold, silver, precious stones. Let's consider some wood, hay, and stubble. I think, uh, obviously, gold, silver, precious stones is doing the right thing. But with the right motive. Motives matter. I think someday we're going to get to heaven and we'll have done some of the right things with the wrong motive and it's going to be consumed. It's going to be burned up. It's not just doing the right thing. I've got to do it with the right attitude, the right motive. Remember, we have in Matthew 24 and 25, some people saying, Lord, Lord, don't you remember what I did? And to say, no, no, no. Now, didn't even notice it. That's essentially what he says. It's just burned up. It's wrong motive. So it's the right thing with the right motive. Being in the word and being in prayer. Those things last. If I'm going to serve God, I've got to know God. I can only get to know him if I'm in the word. Rather than skipping opportunities to learn about him or skipping times of prayer or leaving prayer to good bread, good meat, good gosh, let's eat. And then we go on in life. We want to know the Lord and we've got to communicate and talk and pray. Evangelism, telling people about Jesus, that's gold, silver, precious stones. Being a closet Christian and telling nobody about Christ, that is wood, hay, and stubble. Using my time and resources for the kingdom. That's gold, silver, precious stones. Building up the kingdom of Jeff is wood, hay, and stubble. Serving my family for Christ. That's gold, silver, precious stones. Serving Jeff is wood, hay, and stubble. It matters the foundation that you and I build on. And the Lord is looking for us to be sold out for that foundation. As I think about a man who was sold out, I think of John Adams. John Adams on July 4th, 1776, to the Continental Congress said this. Sink or swim. Live or die. I am willing to give my life, God willing, for the declaration of independence that this nation may be free. He was willing to be sold out. And that's what God is calling us to be. Sold out to build the foundation of our lives on Jesus Christ. Foundations matter. I think of a building that was completed in 1173. You've heard of the building. It's in Pisa, Italy. It's the Leaning Tower of Pisa. This particular building is 14,500 tons of material. It's 180 feet tall. Almost immediately, the Leaning Tower of Pisa started to lean. In fact, it is off by between 16 and 17 feet. That's how far off center it is. Almost immediately it was leaning. And in fact, every year, even to this day, it continues to list 120th of an inch more. Benito Mussolini, 
the dictator, the fascist dictator, said before World War II, the Leaning Tower of Pisa is an embarrassment to Italy. Straighten it up. And so his engineers, who had more brawn than they did brains, uh, poured about 70 metric tons of concrete at the base to stop it from leaning. And that just caused it to lean a little bit more and to sink a little bit more rapidly. By 1990, it was considered too unsafe to go in anymore. And so the two and a half million people that would visit the Leaning Tower of Pisa were not allowed to go up in it because it was listing at between 16 and 17 feet off center. And in fact, engineers said by the year 2030, it will collapse. Having received that bad news, uh, Italy is just so uh, very efficient. It took nine years before they began to do something about it. And they hired uh, 14 structural engineers who spent 24 and a half million dollars. Uh, the first thing they did was get rid of the 70 metric tons that Benito Mussolini poured, which caused it to sink more rapidly. But then at the base, they surrounded it with steel and pulled it out. They also straightened it up by 45 centimeters. That's a whopping 18 inches. Now that, by the way, allowed people to go back up into the Leaning Tower of Pisa because now it won't collapse for another 300 years. So if you think the math is good, go ahead and go to the top. Do you know what the problem is with the Leaning Tower of Pisa? Pisa is not an Italian word. It's a Greek loan word. It means marsh. Who builds a 14,500 ton building on a marsh? Unless you're Mexico City, you don't do that. And so they built this tower on a marsh. So almost immediately, it begins to sink. And now you get the idea with Benito Mussolini adding 70 metric tons more to the weight, why it would sink all the more. There's a second problem. It's 180 feet tall. You know how many feet it is below? Just 10. Just 10. In a marsh, you ought to be able to dig a little bit deeper than 10 in a marsh. You know what I'm saying? Foundations matter. Foundations matter for a building. They matter for you. They matter for me. Foundations matter. What we do with the opportunities, the talents, the time, the treasure entrusted to us is how we're building our lives with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, or stubble. So what exactly is this phrase about it will be tested with fire? How did we go so wrong as to look at verses 13 and 15 and come up with purgatory? Well, <laughs> we had the wrong people interpreting it. We had Latins interpreting it. Uh, where is Corinth? It's in Greece, right? It's Hellenistic. And it's actually a metaphor. In the Hellenistic culture, when you have a magnificent building, yes, the, the aesthetics matter. If you've been to Greece, you know the aesthetics really matter. And the size of the building, that really matters. The bigger, the better. 
But there's something more important. And that is, can it withstand fire? The test in the Hellenistic world for a great building was, is it built with materials that can withstand fire? It's just a metaphor. It's a metaphor every Hellenist would understand. It's a metaphor that Paul's original readers would have totally understand. When you're building, you can build with inferior materials. And when fire comes, it will be consumed. Or you can build with superior materials. And when fire comes, it will withstand the test. And so the text is saying how you, how I, how we build our lives, the materials we use matters. Are we building our lives on kingdom principles? Are we building our lives for kingdom advancement? Are we building our lives on the foundation of Jesus when it is tested the impurities which will exist because we're impure people, it will be burned off, it will be smelted off, and yet it will last. Or are we building our lives on things that are temporal here on this earth that will not survive the test of God's evaluation, which will be fire, and it will be consumed that we ourselves will be saved. That's what the text is saying. But if we build well, not only do we walk in the good pleasure of the Lord, not only do we avoid the discipline of the Lord, not only do we avoid wasting our lives rather than pursuing kingdom things, but the text overwhelmingly says that God will give us rewards to go into eternity. Now, do we serve just for the rewards? Of 